Tonight I'm filling in for Michelle, who's going to be substituting for Steve. (laughs) So I'm a third stringer. Uh, I thought we could just use this evening if you have some questions left that you'd like to discuss. Did you hear the question in the back? Yes or no? (laughs) Well, to paraphrase it, sometimes I've said that there's nothing really stored, that things are happening just in the moment. And sometimes that seems quite true in experience. And yet at other times, it really feels like something is coming from some long past event, whether in the body or in the mind, like memories or emotions. I think they're both true. You know, things are not stored in the sense that they're there waiting for us. But I think it is true that the arising of a moment's experience is conditioned by many things. One of the things it's conditioned by is all our past experience, past events. Um, so in that way, I think for me anyway, the, the term conditioned by is more, uh, somehow strikes at how it's happening more clearly than stored, which tends to make it quite solid, as if it's there waiting for us rather than arising out of conditions. So I think your perception on both sides is quite accurate. You know, you can see it just arising, but also not disconnected from our history. I also wouldn't assume that memories in our own minds are necessarily unknown by other minds. They're not known by my mind, let me, (laughs) to put your your mind at rest. (laughs) But I think there are some minds (laughs) that, that have that capacity. And I missed the last thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> the third thing pushed out the first. <laughs> what was the first one? <laughs> oh, right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, there's the story of the dullard where he, he couldn't remember a four-line verse. 
The Buddha talked about the, the quality or characteristic, which is the karmic cause of intelligence and wisdom, uh, is really the mind which questions things. You know, the mind which is interested in finding out how things are happening, how things are working, rather than... I mean, in some way it's obvious. If a mind is very dull and uninterested, not questioning, it's very difficult to learn then. It doesn't have that energy of investigation. And it's in that respect that investigation, and here in the particular context, investigation of the Dhamma, is a factor of enlightenment. It's a factor of awakening. Because it is a cause of wisdom. In terms of rebirth, you know, in the in the classical teachings, uh, there is quite a detailed description of uh, the six realms. You know, four lower realms, the human realm, uh, and the the heavenly realms, the devas and the brahmas. And basically, the teaching is that we just cycle through these according to karma and its fruit. Uh, until we attain awakening, realization, liberation. Um, And so it is quite possible both to be reborn as an animal and then for an animal to come back as a human, like Lassie, or (laughs) 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 really good. (laughs) I I think in one way that the Buddhist teaching is not kind of or runs counter to what might be a popularized New Age teaching. You know, sometimes there's the belief that we're just on this process of inevitable evolution, which is a nice thought. But it's not really how the Buddha taught. He said that actions, results are determined by the kinds of actions that are taken. And we see both in our own lives and certainly in the world at large, there are some people who are really going towards more and more light. And then there are other people, because of ignorance, because of not understanding, are performing those very actions which lead to more and more suffering. And it's precisely because of this, the inexorability of the law of karma that the Buddha emphasized so much us awakening to what it is that we're doing, to really paying attention. What are our actions? Where are they leading? So often we act as if the act is some isolated event and is not going to have consequences. And that's just a very limited view, a very limited understanding. It's like you know, dropping a stone in a pond. Drop the stone in, and there are, there are all of these ripples. Each of our actions is like that. It's in this respect that really as a reference point, in our lives, the precepts are so powerful. They're not, they're not as commandments. They're not as shoulds. They're really, they're there as reminders or wake-up calls. If we've undertaken a commitment to follow the precepts, then in all those moments when we might, out of impulse, do something that's breaking them, the very fact of being committed to the precepts kind of wakes us up. Okay, what is this act about? Do I really want to do it? And so it's a very powerful force in people's lives. The Buddha talked a lot about sila and the, the beauty and the power of it for us. Was there a third? What was the third one? A personality. <laughs> this is the fruit of practice. 
So practice on. <laughs> In some way, I see personality as as um, basically the establishment of very strong patterns, you know, patterns of action. But it's not so mysterious. I think I mentioned in the talk on karma, you know, that principle that everything that's done, it becomes easier for that same thing to happen again. And so every time we express anger, it becomes easier to do that again. Every time we practice generosity, it becomes easier to do that again. So really, it's in the sense, in a very literal way, our life is our practice. It's what we are practicing, moment after moment after moment. The question is, are we practicing consciously? Or are we just acting out without real discriminating wisdom, discriminating awareness? Developing patterns, developing personality traits that we might not choose if we were more conscious. Of course, some... Some personality traits also come from previous lives. There's one little story from the Buddhist time. There was this group of enlightened beings walking through the forest. And they come to a stream and they all cross the stream with great decorum, except for this one monk who comes to the stream, he hitches up his robe, takes a running leap and jumps over the stream. And the other monks were aghast, you know, in, in an enlightened way, of course. <laughs> yeah, and they went to the Buddha. I mean, they were really upset. Yeah. This, how could this monk, you know, do that? It was so undignified. And the Buddha said, you know, that monk had been a monkey for the last 500 lifetimes. <laughs> and it's like he came to the stream and just... <laughs> So part of how we are is our monkey nature <laughs> or whatever our past lives might have happened to be. I don't understand how it happens either. So, <laughs> just to preface my remarks with that. But the principle involved, I'm, I'm not really talking about the mechanism, but the principle involved is for example, if the shoulders are up like this, it's not necessarily that in that moment fear is there waiting to come out. But that, that pattern might have been conditioned by some fear in the past. And at a certain point, as attention is being brought to it, you know, and maybe as it begins to relax or soften, so that becomes the condition for in that moment the fear arising, you know. And so there's the sense that, or the language we use to describe it, it was stored and now it's released. I mean, one of the ways of getting a sense of what this means is just as the practice goes deeper and you get more and more to the, just to the momentary, microscopic level of 
of energy patterns, there's nothing solid there at all. There's nothing. There is a there is a continuity of moments arising, and those individual moments are conditioned. There are patterns to it. But in any one moment, it's just arising and vanishing, arising and vanishing. And so that's the that's the perspective. You know that you can bring to the awareness of these different things being released or. Does that help at all? Okay, you know, with this, what I would suggest, be with your experience as it is. There's really no need to get locked in to any interpretation whatsoever. You know, it's really just to stay with your experience as it's showing itself. So many times in the course of my practice, countless times, I get to a certain place and I think, oh, this is how it is. You know, and I thought, yeah, and now I really understand it. And I'd practice another few weeks, a month, however long. I'd come to a different level. Oh, it wasn't like that. It's like this. And so the conceptual model we use to interpret how things are, to describe how things are, keeps changing. So I wouldn't get too hung up about one way or another. You know, just however it seems to you in the moment is fine. Stay open, that's all, rather than fix that way of seeing it. She really had a lot of personal suffering. I, I think I mentioned to someone, uh, you know, she was married when she was 12, which that was the custom, you know, in India at that time, which, so that's difficult enough. <laughs> but then, you know, she married, she had kids. In a very short period of time, her, her husband died and two of her three children died. And she, this was before she was into practice. And she was really uh, I mean so stricken by grief. I think I mentioned that, that she was in bed or bedridden for several years. I mean evidently there was some sickness involved in that also. So she was very you know, a lot of emotional grief, a lot of physical weakness. And it was that, it was that amount of suffering. She said that she knew that unless she found a way out of the suffering, she would die. You know, she just had that strong feeling in herself. And that's when she went, she was living in Burma at the time, is when she went to uh, first one monastery and then uh, the monastery where, where we all ended up practicing in Rangoon. There's one story, she had such amazing samadhi she was doing some walking meditation and one time a dog uh, bit her in the leg and she was so concentrated just on the sensation that she didn't know a dog had bit her (laughs) she was just (laughs) she was amazing she really was amazing In all the talks that have been given uh, about other realms, nobody has ever really described the six different daily realms. Are you able to say anything about that? (laughs) Well, (laughs) (laughs) not really. (laughs) There are (laughs) the lower of the Deva. There's there's a Deva realm called the Heaven of the Thirty Three, which is. There are actually seven, seven deva realms. These are, these are realms of sense pleasures. The realm of the 33 is the second, number two of the seven. And it's supposed to be a place just of great sensual delight. Uh, the, the, in, the, in the text I described this one uh, pleasure grove. And the Buddha has said, 
for people who haven't visited there, they don't know what sensual happiness is. <laughs> you know, it's like, and it's just the fruit. It's the fruit of, you know, wholesome karma. That doesn't last that long, or it lasts longer than, than in the human realm, but, you know, at some point we come, it comes to an end and then back around. Um, for yogis, though, yogis actually don't like so much being born in that realm, uh, because as I'm told, uh, it's quite noisy. There's all this, there's all this celestial music going on. <laughs> you know, sort of various carryings on. Actually, I think this is another deeper mass story. I may have gotten this a little mixed up, but it was something like this. Of her visiting that realm. Because she described, she had the, she had the psychic ability to see uh, both the higher realms and the lower realms. Uh, and I think, she, I think the story was that she kind of was visiting there with her mind, and it was so noisy uh, that she kind of created a a psychic meditation hut in the sky, <laughs> you know, to kind of sit and walk. <laughs> uh, then there's a, there's a realm called Tusita Heaven, which is actually where generally uh, yogis prefer to go. But that's, that's the fourth of the seven heaven realms. Uh, and it's where Maitreya, the next Buddha, is supposed to be hanging out and teaching. And there's more Dharma. There's more Dharma activity there and people practicing. Um. <laughs> in, these, in these realms, there's bodies of light. It's not, it's not like a gross physical body and beings are born spontaneously there. So there's no, there's no birth process. Said that due to one's karma, if rebirth takes place in these planes, that one just appears spontaneously around age 15 or 16 and just ready to enjoy. <laughs> Munindra used to love talking about this stuff and I used to love listening about it. I don't think it's so much I don't think it's a realm in that sense it's, it's really uh, maybe you could call it uh, levels of understanding or different perspectives on the same experience and it really has to do with Wisdom in the mind, you know, so that as we're living in this relative plane, you know, of being in a body and taking care of the body and in relationship with other people, whether all of that is held in the wisdom of understanding impermanence and selflessness, because if it is, if the, that wisdom is present, then we move in the relative in the relative perspective, without or with less attachment. And if we live with less attachment, we live with less suffering. So it's not like two, you know, it's not like going back and forth between two realms. It really has to do with the level of wisdom we bring to our experience. I mean, I hope you've seen by now one of the things that continually con- amazes me about the mind and our lives. Is the vast amount of time we spend in thought-constructed worlds. 
It's just phenomenal. It's it's like most of our lives. And yet, when we bring wisdom to it, and that's, that's the great beauty of a retreat. It's like we've really created a circumstance where you can be noticing quite often that it is just a thought-constructed world, the whole house of cards collapses. And then there's really just resting in the nature of phenomena, of things arising and passing. And there's ease in the mind, there's spaciousness in the mind. But then again, you know, some other thought, feeling, image, whatever, captures us. And we get lost in the drama again. And it could be a drama of self-judgment. It could be a drama of comparing, of drama about other people. But what really are, what is all that? It's just, (laughs) it's just an empty thought. And so uh, I see a lot of the practice, it really is about awakening, not awakening as something that's going to happen, you know, in 20 years or next lifetime, but actually awakening in every moment. Okay, what is actually happening in this moment? Not, not our thought construct about it. And when we see it in this way, and it takes repeated, it takes, the conditioning is so strong, as you know. You know, our habit is so strong in this regard. It takes, that's why it's called meditation practice. It really takes practicing over and over again. At a certain point, and we bring a lot more humor to it, and we just, <laughs> we just see the mind You know, something I mentioned very early on in the retreat, this line from the Dhammapada of how the mind can be our worst enemy or our best friend. And it's so true. And when we don't understand the basic emptiness of phenomena, we get, we get caught, we get imprisoned. It's like we're really held in the grip of phenomena. Until we see. And then it's like, shh. You know, we can just really let everything be. Let it all come and go. The problem, of course, is that we tend to this tendency to personalize it. You know, we, we take it, we claim it, yeah, this is who I am. My thought, my feeling, my image, my mood, my pain, whatever. And that's the, that's the great trap. We become trapped in that misunderstanding. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, certainly there's an unlayering, you know, and, and you know, in the, in the beginning of a retreat, most people are dealing with thoughts about quite recent events in their lives, but then they clear out, and then thoughts come from further back in one's life, and then. As you say, it can get really <laughs> ridiculous. But by that, you know, hopefully, by that point, one is really seeing it as just this display, this empty display. I, I guess I find, too, that there's a tendency to want to sort of categorize what comes up. Um, for example, just we were discussing sort of memory. I'm finding that as I go on, the 
the, the, the memories are actually becoming closer in chronological time. Mm -hmm. And, and pre uh, previously or earlier, it, it was you know, childhood stuff. Uh -huh. Yeah, I, however it's coming. Maybe pretty soon you'll be having memories of the future. <laughs> but they are, they are all empty thoughts. Do you, understand, do you have a sense of what I mean by emptiness? It's not that they're not there. They are there, but there's no real substance to them. There's a, there are these words in the mind, or a picture in the mind, or a coloration of the mind. That's all. But it's like, it's sort of like when you watch a fireworks display. You know, then there's this display and it's very dramatic or whatever it is, but it's gone. You know, and one after the other. And that's how our experience is. So really, the practice is becoming very simple, just really settling back. Just settling back. Watch the fireworks. Not to my knowledge. <laughs> I don't think he framed it in that way. And somehow, having been through endless hours of discussion of that, particularly when I was in college, you know, it's, it's a perennial and favorite subject, my sense is that, it's, that the discussion is just framed in the wrong way. And not to get into a long discussion of it, because uh, I think it probably is endless, but perhaps just a, a seed for you to think about after the retreat is over. Somehow it's the sense of understanding that something can be conditioned without being determined. You know, so I don't think it's I don't think it's the free will determinist. I think those are the wrong concepts to describe or to try to figure out how it's happening. That things are conditioned in certain ways, but that conditioning is not a determination. I think it's predicted on probability lines. But again, that, this is just my sense of it. I don't predict the future too much. <laughs> Well, in some schools of Buddhism, the vow is taken to uh, how to say to facilitate all beings becoming Buddha. So that's how the endeavor is framed in certain schools. In other schools, it's seen not a question of that all beings necessarily will, that all beings have the potential. And then it's, it's a matter of individual effort. You know, that we all can do it. And it's a question of whether any particular individual actually does do it. It's certainly, certainly possible because 
that in this long period of time will will undoubtedly take human birth again. And again, depends what what they do. It's what what I love about Buddhism is just it's so vast, and it's just you know it's just really big picture of things. There are many worlds. Many worlds. Oh yeah, this is this is. There are. Well, in that in that sense, it does provide a kind of. You know, it's, they talk about infinite numbers of world systems and in each world system all these planes of existence and and even Buddhist cosmology aside just in terms of our current astronomical knowledge you know even the physical universe that can be detected in one way or another not to speak of other realms which can't be detected through the physical senses I mean, it's of unbelievable immensity. It seems very unlikely that in this immensity, you know, this is the only little speck that has life on it. But this is just, this is my... (laughs) Any practice questions? I don't know if I can speak about a halfway point, but it certainly gets easier. And I'll just give you a simple example, you know, but it can be extrapolated to so many things. I've really noticed the effect of the practice of mindfulness uh, just in speech. Simply by being aware, sometimes, if not often, you know, of what I'm about to say before I say it. Just that, just that simple awareness creates the space to make a choice. Is it useful? Is it not useful? And many times, you know, I see thoughts arise in the mind which are not skillful, and I can feel in them the urge to be spoken. But when the mindfulness is present, and increasingly, and especially with unwholesome states of mind, the mindfulness comes into play. It's almost like it's called into play by the unwholesomeness. And that's a tremendous fruit of practice, because then instead of simply having that habit and acting on it, the habit of mind may still be there, but we see it. And in the seeing, there's the freedom you know, not to act. And so there really is a, a tremendous diminishing in that way. And also in terms of understanding Understanding how to investigate and unhook from unwholesome emotional states. Emotional states that, that are causing me suffering. If there's an interest, and, and this has been my great interest, uh, to see when there's suffering in the mind, 
I get really motivated to understand how is that being created? How am I getting caught in it? How am I getting hooked in it? And that has really prompted a very careful investigation. It's not an intellectual. It's not, it's not thinking it out. But it's really just looking through the power of our awareness, of our mindfulness. Well, what's happening here? You know, and learning over time the ways of seeing it and understanding it so the mind unhooks, the mind lets go of it. And we really do learn something <laughs> from all the sitting and walking. So, let me run this by you. In a uh, sort of working with a version, uh, an experience came up, and, and in the past there would be a negative you know, comment, criticism. And I seemed to catch this thought. I knew it was coming. I caught it about right here. And, uh, <laughs> that's, for those of you who can't see, it's, that's here. <laughs> sounds fine. It sounds like just through being aware of it at that point, at that level in your mind, you weren't feeding it. I mean, mostly why things grow and become strong is because in some way or another, through a lack of attention, we're feeding it. Through identification, through reaction, through dislike, through aversion, through attachment. I mean, these are all the mechanisms you know, of strengthening of this phenomenon. The awareness really goes in the opposite direction. It's just seeing it as a momentary arising. There's a thought of aversion in the mind. That's not a problem. It really is not a thought of aversion. If we're right there with it, and we're not judgmental of it, we're not averse to the thought of aversion, it's there and it's gone. And it hasn't, it hasn't taken root. I wouldn't. I wouldn't solidify too much the idea that thoughts are in your belly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Talk about the what heart. Right. Well, I mean, that happens. (laughs) And sometimes the practice is being mindful retroactively. You know, where we do, we do something. That that happens even in the sitting, you know, where you can be aware of a thought after it's already over. And then, then you become aware that you were thinking. Likewise in speech or in action, but if you stop and pay attention to that moment even retroactively, that becomes a support for catching it quicker next time. In terms of uh, that sutta that what, where the Buddha was talking about grief as a dart, you know, This is very delicate, really a very delicate understanding here. But it has application beyond the emotion of grief itself. And that is we need to learn how to open and be aware of the whole range of feelings that might arise 
without becoming identified with them, without becoming lost in them, without wallowing in them, without drowning in them, you know, whatever, <laughs> whatever metaphor or degree works for you. It's delicate because sometimes people, in an effort not to identify, go too far the other way and are actually pushing it away. Well, that doesn't work, and it's not so healthy. And this is why I say it's very delicate. Grief, like anger, like hatred, like fear, like loneliness, like a whole range of emotions, is a state of suffering. There's suffering involved in it. We actually can free ourselves from that. But we need to do it with a lot of care. You know, so that we, if it's arising, first of all, not pretending or not having an ideal, well, I'm a meditator, so I shouldn't feel this. I mean, that's completely off. We feel whatever we feel and whatever it is that's coming up. The question is, how are we holding it? How are we aware of it? With grief, it's particularly difficult because it feels so personal. And usually the story around it is so very personal. You know, so It's said that at the time of the Buddha, the time of his death, all the beings around him, you know, all the disciples, and uh, they were all grieving except for the arhans, the fully enlightened ones. And for me, that points to something that, again, is not a, this is not a popular view. But from my experience, it seems true. Sometimes things are justified or encouraged in the belief that, well, this is natural. It's natural for someone to feel this. That seems to me only a partial view. Things are natural according to different levels of understanding. And what's natural at one level may not be natural at another level. So we just want to understand that in this scope of the awakening mind, not to lock ourselves into any one view of what it is that that is natural, because that keeps changing. If we really understood the big picture, both kind of the cycle of life and death, of karma, of selflessness, of emptiness, if we had a full view of all that, there would not be grief. You know, to quote the title of Stephen Levine's book, Who Dies? Who dies? Who's born? I mean, on a relative level, we know, you know. <laughs> There's somebody here and then they're not here. But if we are really connected in some way with that which is deathless, it really changes our view on the whole process of life and death. So again, it's just being where we are, not not with a pretense that something isn't happening. You know, if grief is there or other emotions are there, that's what's there and that's fine. How are we being with it? Well, it's, mo- it's mostly, I mean, in that description, 
again, this is, goes back to the Buddhist cosmology a little bit. It's really about beings in the lower realms, you know, where the where the suffering is so overwhelming that it's either very difficult or impossible to get enough space to really be mindful. So that's usually what that's in reference to. Because, because suffering in the human realm, for the most part, the nature of the human realm and the nature of the human mind is that we do have the potential, even when there's a lot of suffering there, to bring understanding to it. In, in maybe in a talk that I'll give you know, sometime in the next couple of weeks, uh, there's this amazing story of this Tibetan doctor you know, who was captured by the Chinese and tortured uh, for years. And it just describes how he was with that. You know, so that, that's an example of, of somebody in overwhelming suffering and yet had the ability to transform it into wisdom. question was, how has it happened that, you know, even being on retreat and learning to disidentify and developing great wisdom, that when you leave retreat and are with your parents, it seems like you haven't sat for five minutes. <laughs> what happens? It gets easier. But not to limit it to one's parents, because we don't want to become, uh, what's the word, uh, parent phobia. <laughs> Any difficult person, you know, whoever might happen to be difficult for us. Um, it is its own practice. You know, and so just in the same way as we practice here in a certain situation with the breath or sensations or different emotions, It's as much of a practice at those times when we're with somebody who, for whatever reason, pushes our buttons or pushes very deep buttons. You know, and the first time or second time or third time or however long it takes, it's the practice of staying mindful, of really being aware. At a certain point, just as you've learned to be, I hope by now, somewhat more comfortable with knee pain, you know, that, that in the beginning it might have been intolerable, and now it's okay. You can, you can be with it. Or a certain emotional state, you know, that at first seems intolerable, and then you learn to make space behind it. It's the same, it's the same practice when we're relating with people who, for whatever reason, are difficult for us. So it's not that the first time, just as the fruit of sitting, you're going to be totally equanimous. But if you practice with them, you will see it develop. You begin to see more and more. You see them as just another human being who undoubtedly are suffering just like we are. <laughs> no, there is. It's about it's the psychology, and Steve Armstrong here is is has probably done the most study of it, you know, of us. Um, 
it's a very sophisticated and detailed analysis both of the mind and the body in terms of all the different states and kinds of consciousness, all of the different mental factors and how they operate, how they relate to one another. Uh, So in that sense, it's a psychology in the sense of a detailed analysis of the mind. Um, And it's extremely sophisticated, born out of a meditative understanding. It's not, in that sense, it's not theoretical, although it is a theoretical presentation, but it it really can be um, verified experientially through the practice. It's interesting. One of the reasons that my teacher Munindra trained Deepama in the psychic powers was he he was an Abhidhamma scholar, and he was very interested to know to verify some of the things that are in the Abhidhamma that you could only that you could only see, you know, if you had that degree of power of mind. And so that was one of his motivations for training her. You know? uh, and, she, you know, she, she did all kinds of things, you know, as well as sort of exploring the different realms, but really looking into uh, the nature of this mind in, in, you know, in this very precise and exact way that's possible through samadhi. So that's what's meant. There, there, I don't know how many. There are six, six volumes. Or, I know there's a lot. There, there are many volumes in the Abhidhamma. Yeah, that, yeah, the Abhidhamma is what's called the Buddhist psychology. Either in a question and answer or in a, in a talk, we can lay it up. It's 830. (laughs) I'd like to just remind you knowing how easy it is, especially in a long retreat, you know, as you go from one sitting and walking to the next, some, sometimes to lose sight of the magnitude of what's happening. Uh, this is a tremendous thing. I mean, it really is. It's, it's the work of transforming the mind. And it's transforming it in the most simple and direct way through paying attention. Now, Krishnamurti had this, this wonderful line. He said, it's the truth which liberates, not your efforts to be free. And that's really what we're doing. We're, we're just exploring through the power of awareness, moment after moment, what is true, what is actually happening in this moment, coming out of our thought-created worlds, that world's you know, that we, that we create and live in. And just dropping so simply into the experience of each moment. Um, there's a tremendous power in terms of deconditioning the mind from the habits, from the, from the very deep habits of attachment and aversion and identification. So I say this just 
I take such delight in the fact that you're doing this, and I hope you do too, (laughs) at least sometimes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.